Well, good morning. Magandang uh, umaga po sa atin lahat. Just to surprise those that don't know me, medyo ano, hindi ko magaling, pero ano, pwede nga na magtagalog. Um, anyway, it's really a privilege. Uh, I, I actually brought Pastor Insong in my suitcase. Kasi kasha naman eh, di ba? Uh, anyway, it's really good to be able to be here, to be with you. Uh, God is just uh, very good, and uh, we're here actually uh, to visit our supporters. We are missionaries with Campus Crusade for Christ, so every few years we have to come back and, and uh, talk with our supporters. But along the way, uh, we're also doing other things related to CCF missions. So it's kind of uh, interesting that we're supposed to be doing one thing, but it ends up that we're doing more things with CCF, I think, than what we're supposed to be doing with our, our missions deputation. Um, I'll be, of course, preaching here now. We're going up to CCF San Francisco. By the way, CCF San Francisco is growing and it's doing really well, so keep praying for them um, by God's grace. <clears throat> then in, in May, we will also be going to CCF Toronto. And uh, we just got this interesting request. They were asking for help because they have to build, or they have to fill an auditorium with 300 seats. And they're asking us to help them with chairs. So imagine this is a one-year-old church. There are already uh, over 200 people that are worshiping together. So God is doing some really amazing things uh, in Canada. I don't know what's wrong with Canada. They seem to be you know, expanding really quickly. Well, this morning, I want to share with you something that probably most of us, this is not really new news. It's really what is the gospel? What's the essence of the gospel? And what is it that makes it so powerful? Now, for many of us, this is something that we have uh, understood for many years, but uh, we believe there's always time for us to review and to be able to look back on what God has done in our lives and for some of us, really, to get a better understanding and a grip on what it is that Christ has actually done for us. Um, how many of you like watching the news? It's like it's an addiction here in America. I mean, you can have news 24-7 on everything. You can get it on your cell phone. You can get it on your laptop. You can get it on TV. It's like people watch news all the time. And I like uh, looking at interesting news, like kind of weird news. Um, you like this? Homicide victims rarely talk to police. <laughs> Some of you haven't got it yet, okay? <laughs> this is still a little early in the morning, but it's like, how many homicide victims talk to anybody? I mean, come on. Okay, then this one is a really nice one. Police arrest everyone on February 22nd. Wow, that's amazing. They just arrested everyone. Okay, this one, you remember the good old days when everybody was fixated about Diana when she died? This was an amazing revelation. <laughs> wow, that's headline news. She was alive before she died. Isn't that amazing? Okay, another one, this, I have a lot, I know there are many medical people here, but this one will shock you also. Hospitals resort to hiring doctors. Wow. 
Wow. What were they hiring before? That's what I want to know. Okay. Now, we don't want to leave out the other major profession, so we'll talk about lawyers here, okay? It says, lawyers back despite use of bug spray. <laughs> what were they trying to spray the, the... Anyway, maybe they were bugs or something. I don't know. And we always uh, get on the case of the federal government, so we have to also go after the government here. Federal agents raid gun shop and find weapons. Wow, isn't that amazing? And what were they expecting to find? <coughs> okay, now some of us have issues with anger, so you might want to go to an anger management class, but be careful. Stabbing disrupts class for anger management. Okay. You know, when we look at the news, there's all kinds of interesting, crazy things and everything. But most of the time, when we watch the news, it's not good news, it's not funny, it's not something that's like that. It's usually bad news. And these days, I don't know, maybe coming back to the U.S., it's, it's because of the political situation has been so weird the last year. I don't know what it is, but it just seems like everybody is in a depressed state when they watch the news. It just seems like everything is so bad. It's like the end is coming or something. And uh, by the way, just for your information, it really isn't completely true. Do you realize that the crime rate in the United States today is at its lowest in over 25 years? Okay, but we don't hear that because you, you see on TV all of the violent crime and all of that stuff and you think, well, things are getting worse. <clears throat> the job situation. Now, I know many of us have struggled because of the economic situation, but do you realize that the job situation, the unemployment rate, is almost at a 25-year low? Now, that may be surprising if especially you're looking for work, but actually the economy is turning around. And I knew that when I came back because the traffic has gotten worse here. <laughs> You know, you can always tell that people are doing better because the traffic gets worse or, you know, people are in the malls and all of that stuff. Um, many people are so worried about the chaos of terrorism. They're worried about terrorists. And uh, I think it's interesting. Whenever I come here, people say, aren't you scared of living in the Philippines? You know, there's so many terrorists. And I say, yeah, but we watch the news about L.A., Right? Okay, I mean, which is worse, L.A. or <laughs> terrorists? In fact, you realize that you are about 10 times more likely to die of a lightning strike than you are to be killed by a terrorist. Sink in, okay? That's, it is very rare that anybody is ever affected here in the United States by terrorism, but it seems like everybody's fixated on the bad news. Now, why is it? that people are fixated on bad news. Well, because it's sensational. It instills fear. All of these things are things that make us just like glued to our TV whenever something terrible happens. But my observation is that that same tendency tends to also uh, take us away from what is good news, something that is really amazing. And I think even for us as Christians, we get so swept up in all of the news that's going around, we forget about the amazing story, the amazing news that we have heard 
about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you realize how amazing the story is? And today we want to just spend a little bit of time going back and reflecting on what that gospel is. And along the way, we're going to address a couple of issues, the principal office issues that we were talking about earlier, because it is important that we as a church are united together and moving forward in the same direction. So before I go too far, why don't we pray together and ask God's blessing on our time. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, when we are surrounded so often with so much bad news, so many uh, difficult things that we hear on TV and the media, Lord, we are inundated with the idea that things are getting worse and things are falling apart. And yet we know that's not true because we know you. And Father, we pray that today as we look at the message of the gospel, the essence of what it is that you have done to us and for us, and the new life that you've given to us, Father, would we be renewed in our commitment to standing firm, and Father, to loving you and to growing in our relationship with you. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, Father, that you would guide every word that is said, that it wouldn't be my words, but it would be yours that are heard. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we go too far, what is the gospel? Well, gospel simply means good news, okay? It comes from the Greek word euangelion. Uh, I have to do that because otherwise you won't be impressed with me. You know, I'm just telling these funny stories and <laughs> who is this guy anyway? Um, but euangelion is a compound word, starts with you, not you, but E-U, and that means good like euphoric is you have a good feeling, okay? Those are the words that we get you from. And then angelion, you should, you should get angel out of that, right? What's an angel? He's a messenger, a bearer of news. He's uh, someone that is bringing news or bringing a message from God to us. So that's what angelion is, is a messenger or an announcement or news. So that is, simply what the gospel is. It is good news. Now, why is it good news? Well, I want to use the story of uh, a Pharisee named Nicodemus to be able to kind of understand the message of the good news as Jesus presented it. And uh, by the time we get done with the story, you're going to go, oh, that's where that came from, I hope. Okay, you should all do that at the end. Okay, I'm looking for, oh, okay, all right, okay. Practice. Oh, okay, very good. You got them well indoctrinated here. That's great, I'm glad. Okay, well, this is what happened. In John chapter three, and if you have your Bible, you can open it. Otherwise, you can just read uh, from the LCDs. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, set the, the, the stage. Who is Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. Are Pharisees good guys? Well, when you look at all of the things that Jesus said about the Pharisees, you realize they're hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, all of that stuff. But actually during that time, they were the good guys for the Jews. Why? Because... Unlike the Sadducees, the Sadducees were basically the lackeys of the, the power of uh, Rome, 
they just went along and did whatever Rome told them to do, so they were considered the bad guys. The Pharisees, they maintained their religion, they maintained their Jewishness. And so for most of the people during that time, they would say that the Pharisees were the good guys and the Sadducees were the bad guys. Now Jesus later turned that around and he said, actually your heart's far from me. You don't get what the message is of grace. You're putting people under the law and all of that stuff. But here is a, a Pharisee who is sincere. I mean, here is a guy that in spite of the fact that the other Pharisees and many other religious leaders did not like Jesus, he came to Jesus because he was curious. He wanted to know, was this guy really the Messiah? Now it's interesting, he came at night. Why do you think he came at night? What do you usually do at night? You sneak around so that nobody sees you, yeah. right? Um, <clears throat> of course, he might have been interested, but he didn't want the other Pharisees and the other religious leaders to know that he was going to Jesus. So there was a little fear, but it was enough interest there to overcome that fear and to go and to be associated with somebody that actually was hated by his own people. So that's what he was doing. And what does he say? He says, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. Okay, so he's saying, you know, we can really see that there's something about you, about your message, something about your life that is different. I mean, I don't understand it, but we see the miracles, we see your teaching. What is it about that? Now, it's funny because Jesus then turns the, the, the whole situation around and he says something that the Pharisee didn't even ask. He goes on and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus came to figure out who was Jesus. Is he really the Messiah or not? But Jesus turns the question back to Nicodemus and he says, you need to be born again. What is it that you need to do to be a, a person of the kingdom? You need to bo be born again. Now, what was the response of Nicodemus? Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus was a really bright guy, you can tell, okay? <laughs> and Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus completely derails Nicodemus' conversation here, and he gets to the real point. The real issue isn't, you know, what do people say about Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? He said, okay, that's incidental. The real issue is how are you going to experience eternal life? And if you really get down to it, how are you really going to have a right relationship with God? You want to know who I am or do you really want to have a right relationship with God? That's the real issue. And now I find many people today they're very interested to know kind of the details about the story of Jesus. Oh, do you really believe that he was born of a virgin? Or, you know, oh, what about all of those miracles? Did they really happen? Well, those are actually peripheral issues because the real core issue is what's gonna happen to you at the end of your life? Are you prepared for eternity? Because eternity is coming and either you're ready or you're not ready. And so Jesus, 
cuts to the chase, he gets to the real issue in Nicodemus' life. He says, the issue isn't about what do people say about me, all of this stuff. The issue is, are you prepared to face eternal life? So he then tells him, you have to be born again. And when he says, you have to be born again, Nicodemus is going, what's that? Don't understand. And uh, Jesus says, being born again is similar to being born spiritually or being born physically. You have to be born of water. That's when you are physically born. But you also need to be born spiritually. Now, Nicodemus is a little bit confused, so Jesus goes on. He says, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He says there's a little bit of a mystery to being born again. Okay, now how many of you have ever seen the wind? None? You didn't? You mean there, wind doesn't exist? You haven't seen it? Okay, wrong question, right? Well, you have seen the effects of wind have you ever gone out on a nice spring day when it's a little bit warm and you feel the cool breeze? Was there wind? Yes. Did you see it? No. no. So just because you don't see it doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't exist, right? You see the effects of it, but you may not see the actual wind itself. And Jesus is saying that's what it is like when you are born again you may not fully understand everything that's going on. You can't see salvation. You can't be absolutely certain everything that's happening internally when that happens, but you see the results that take place. In fact, I think in most of your lives, after the time that you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you started seeing change in your life, right? Only two of you saw a change. <laughs> I, yeah. I think we've got some work to do here, okay? <clears throat> now, I'm sure that many of you, after the time that you came to Christ, you saw God begin to make changes. And perhaps you've seen somebody whose life was just totally transformed because God worked in their heart after they got saved. Now, did you understand all of the internal things that were happening uh, when that happened? No, it, it's a bit of a mystery. It's a work of God that he accomplishes in us that may not be absolutely clear in the way that it's done. But just like the wind, just because you don't see it, it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that we see effects, we don't see the process. And I think for many of us, we are like Nicodemus, we wanna know how, how it works, what's the process? And Jesus said that's not the important thing. The important thing is that it must happen in your life in order for you to go to heaven. If you want to go to heaven, you must be born again. There's no alternate way. And uh, I think this is also appropriate today in our, the world that we live in. People would like to think that there are many different ways to be able to get to heaven, right? You know, all paths lead to the same place, blah, blah, blah. The reality is Jesus didn't give that option. And sometimes people get upset at us as Christians because we seem so narrow, so rigid, so judgmental, all of that stuff, because we seem to be the ones 
that are laying this trip on everybody else that you have to follow one path. But actually, it wasn't us that said it. It was Jesus. So if anybody gets mad at somebody, they should get mad at Jesus, not at us. Right? Okay. So what happens after this? Well, Jesus then goes on and explains what it is you need in order for you to be born again. And if you look at the subsequent passages, starting in verse 14, you will see that Jesus then shares probably the most famous uh, Bible verses that we have. Um, but he starts it in verse 14 because he has to show an illustration from the Old Testament to show that God was already doing something then that is similar to what he's doing today. <clears throat> it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him, uh, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So he says that you need to do something like what happened in the Old Testament. Now, do you know this story? Uh, the story about the serpent in the wilderness? I'm not going to go into it in depth, but in Numbers chapter 21, uh, verses 15 to 19, this can be your assignment after today. If you go to that story, uh, the Israelites had just won a great victory. So they had conquered one of their enemies, one of the first times that the children of Israel had gone into battle. This is before they came into the, the promised land. And for the first time, they won a battle. And they were all so excited and everything was going well. But then they got to, uh, back to their camp and for some reason, they started complaining. They started complaining because God didn't do what they wanted, them, wanted him to do. And uh, when they started complaining, they complained about Moses and then they started complaining about God himself. And God was angry. And because of his anger, he sent these snakes into the land, probably rattlesnakes. They were, I'm sure it was in California. So, um, but they sent these poisonous snakes, and these poisonous snakes started biting people, and people were dying. And apparently thousands of people were stricken by these snakes. And so at that time, they all cried out. They all repented. They realized we have been so evil in speaking evil about Moses and about God himself. Uh, we repent. Please take this, this scourge away from us. And so God relented. And the way that he relented was that he told Moses, I want you to take a bronze serpent looking like the snake that had been biting, biting them, put it on top of a, a tall rod, on top of a, a pillar, put it up, and anybody that gets bit by a snake and then turns and looks at this bronze serpent will be healed. So that's what Moses did. He put the, the bronze serpent up, and that bronze serpent became a way for them to be saved from this, these snakes that were biting them. Now fast forward, now we're with Jesus, and Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. You know, salvation is amazingly simple. It's just like in the desert when they were being bitten by these snakes, when they were dying because of this curse that was on them. What did they have to do to be saved? 
just look to the snake, to the bronze serpent. It wasn't difficult. It wasn't something that they had to do, but they had to believe that that act of looking at that bronze servant would save them. Now, what if you were a skeptic and you got bit by a snake and you said, I don't really believe that that, that bronze servant, serpent can do anything. I'm not going to look at it. What will happen to him? He's going to die. Okay? So whether you believe or don't believe doesn't affect the fact that there is power in that serpent to be able to save you. The question is only, do you believe to the point that you are going to turn to do what you are asked to do, which is simply to look on that bronze serpent? So Jesus said, in the same way, all you have to do to be saved is to believe and to look upon him when he is lifted up. Now, what's he talking about? When he was going to go to the cross, he would be lifted up on the cross. He would die for us, for our salvation. And all we have to do is to look to him to save us. Now, what if you don't look to him? Will you be saved? Now, the implication is that it's very simple. All you have to do is look. But if you choose, you know, I really don't believe this. You know, I, I really don't believe in this Jesus. You know, I don't think he has the power to be able to save. And anyway, my life is going on okay. I don't realize that I have the poison of sin in my blood already. So I'm just going to go on with my life. What's going to happen to you? You will ultimately die. You will perish because of the poison that is in your blood already. That's the picture that Jesus pointed to before he then gave us probably our favorite verse in the Bible. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, that was the picture. All you have to do is to look at the Savior, and all you have to do is believe that he has the power to be able to save you, to forgive you of your sins, to give you eternal life. It's such a simple thing. But you know, today there are so many people that are not willing to take that step of faith to believe in what Jesus has done. And it goes on and it says, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God's intention was never that he would put us down, that he would judge us, that he would, you know, not give us a, a way out from the situation that we are in. In fact, his intention from the very beginning, going back to Genesis chapter 3, his intention when we turned from him was to find a way and to provide a way to bring us back into right relationship. It was never his intention that any should perish. It has always been his intention that all would have the opportunity to respond to the gospel. So that's the essence of what Jesus taught. Now, what is it that we have to believe, okay? If that is the, the simple thing, we just need to turn and look to Jesus for salvation, is there anything specific that you need to believe? Like, is there a doctrinal statement or something like that, that if you say that you believe this, then you're okay, but if you don't, then you're not? Well, actually, even that is very, very simple. We can look at what Paul uh, wrote about what the essence of the gospel is. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. This is what he said. He said, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Okay, this is typical Paul. He will spend more time in the prologue than he, he will do in the actual message itself. So he takes three, three verses to tell you what he's going to tell you, and then he takes two verses to tell it. Okay. Get that? I mean, Paul is really fun. Okay. So he's saying, this is the gospel. Okay, heads up now. I'm going to tell you what the message of the gospel is. Okay. Oh, okay, very good. Then he says, for I deliver to you as of what is first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. What is the gospel? Jesus died for our sins, and he was resurrected from the dead. That's all you really need to know about the gospel. Now, there's a lot there if we really dig deeply into it. First of all, we have to admit that we are sinners. We have to recognize that we are separated from God because apart from that, we can't receive the gift that God gives to us. But it's very simple. Just accept that you are a sinner. Now, how many of you have never sinned? Can I see your hand? Okay. Come on, don't be shy. I'm, I'm okay. Nobody? You mean... All of you have sinned? Of course, we all, we know that, but somehow in our pride, especially before we came to know Christ, we don't like to admit that that is our problem, that actually our separation from God is because of our sin, not because of something God did to us. So you have to admit that you are sinful. But then you also have to recognize that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Now, I'm sure we all got that when we were growing up, learning that Jesus died on the cross for us, all of that stuff. That is crucial, but it's not necessarily, uh, doesn't necessarily have the impact because we have heard it so often. You know, some things become so common that we forget the, the value of it. Can you imagine what Christ had to go through in order for us to be forgiven of our sins? I remember when the Passion of the, uh, the Christ came out and all of the very graphic pictures about the suffering that uh, Jesus went through that Mel Gibson made sure was in the movie. I think sometimes that was so graphic, it was startling to remind us that this was an incredible sacrifice, that the, the God of the universe sent his own son to experience that kind of torment is just almost unbelievable. But sometimes we just forget that. We don't recognize that. And Paul says, you must recognize that he died. He sacrificed himself so that our sins can be forgiven. But you can't just believe that. You also must believe that not only did he die, but then he rose again from the dead. He is alive now, so he, he has the power over sin and death. Now, if he had stayed in the grave, 
He didn't have the power to overcome death. The only way that we can overcome death is because he has already overcome death. So that is the essence of the gospel. Pretty simple, right? It, it's not a whole lot of detail that you need to know. You simply need to trust that Jesus has died for our sins, that he rose again from the dead. Now, how do we experience this? Uh, I'm trying to use some verses that you don't commonly use, but they're still very important to us. How should we respond? According to Paul, what is our response? He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, excuse me, you will be saved. Very simple. What do you need to do? Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Now, it's really interesting because this verse actually causes some people problem. They say, well, isn't that doing some kind of work in order for you to be saved? You have to confess with your mouth. But, you know, Paul says works are dead. We can't do any works. We're not supposed to do anything for our salvation. Well, sorry, guys, but that's what he says. He says, if you are not willing to at least confess that Jesus is Lord, then we got to wonder, do you really have faith to begin with? Is there really faith in your heart? So you need to believe in your heart, and you need to be willing to confess. Now, this kind of formula actually is in other ways uh, stated. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives his first message, at the end of the message, they were all pierced to the heart. And Peter says, or they say to Peter, what must we do to be saved? You remember what their response was? Peter said, believe and be baptized. Now you say, well, do you have to be baptized to be saved? Why is it that there is a believe and something else? It's because if you truly believe, there is going to be outward evidence of that. And that's very similar to this. Does the... Baptism gets you saved? No. It's simply a, an outward express, expression of something that has changed in your heart. In this case, the outward expression is to say, Jesus is the Lord of my life, to be willing to speak out and say, I really believe in Jesus. So the core is still believe, but there is going to be a consequence of that that is lived out in your life. That's basically the essence. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, first of all, I hope that for some of us, this will be a good lesson to be able to understand really with greater clarity what the gospel is. Because some people would like to add a lot of other extra stuff to it. And we want to make sure that it is clear that it's simply faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that he will give you eternal life by simply believing. But that there's also consequence that once you make that step of faith, that you believe, you also will see some change in your life, a willingness to speak out, a willingness to be identified through baptism as a Christian. Those are outward experiences that validate what has already taken place in your life. But there's also a second reason that I want to share this, and this is the principal's office thing, okay? Um, we have heard that there are different opinions about certain things regarding theology that have been circulating in this area. 
Now, for those of you who don't know, I'm from Riverside, and uh, I heard that some of this kind of started in Riverside, so it's probably my fault. I don't know. <laughs> <coughs> but um, there are certain people that have become very, I guess I would say, fixated on certain theological ideas or a theological system which has confused different people, okay? Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, praise God. Uh, I hope that this makes no sense to you and you don't really need to know this, and great, just kind of tune out, you know, do your messaging on Facebook or whatever you're gonna do right now, <laughs> which I know some of you are doing right now anyway. Okay, but the reality is that there are certain things that have been taught that have confused people. It's like, well, is there something more to salvation that I'm not getting or, you know, what, what really is the essence of my salvation? Let me give you a little bit of, um, okay, just so that you know, I used to teach and I still teach theology. Uh, I have a PhD in, in philosophy so that I can teach in a seminary. So we talk about all of this stuff, okay? This is important stuff when you're in seminary. Most of the time in the church, it's not really that crucial. But every once in a while, we need to clarify some things. So I'm not trying to pull rank or anything here, but I do want to make sure that there's not confusion. That's the reason that we want to address this. And I want to share something with you that might make this a little bit more easy to understand. Um, when the Bible was written, it, is not, uh, it does not include everything that could be included, right? It's, you know, the book is about this thick, it's not this thick, or it's not, you know, it's not infinite. It doesn't have every detail of all information that could be included. What God chose to give us was sufficient information for us to follow Christ, to be believers in Christ, and to grow in him and to accomplish his purposes, okay? He didn't give us everything. He gave us what was necessary for us to be able to live as believers. Now, in, in order to do that, he gave us certain boundaries of what is right and wrong in scripture. Now, what do I mean by a boundary? What I mean is that anything inside that circle is biblically okay, meaning that could be considered truth. It may not be perfectly understood, but within that circle, we are still in the realm where the Bible says this is possible, okay? Let me give you a couple things. So this is the biblical boundary. Let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, in the Bible, we know that Jesus is going to return. Okay, do we all agree with that? Yes. Okay, so Jesus is coming back. Uh, do we know when? No. no, okay. So what we know is that Jesus will return. That is how much we know at this point. Now, there are some people that are really theologically messed up and they don't really believe that Jesus will return, okay? They think, no, Jesus is not gonna come back. By the way, did you know that Muslims also believe that Jesus will return? It's, it's amazing. They actually are more passionate than some Christians about the return of Jesus. Really weird, okay. <laughs> so, but then there are certain believers that have done a lot of biblical study they're really into end time stuff. They really think they know exactly within a certain realm of what's going to happen. So some of them would say, 
the rapture is going to happen before Jesus returns. Now, is that biblical? Haha, <laughs> you're waiting for me to tell you, huh? <laughs> you're pretty smart. <laughs> so, what I would say is that it is possible within Scripture to believe that the rapture is going to happen before Jesus returns. Okay, there are certain passages that seem to indicate that. But, okay, I'll give you a clue. I am what they call post-tribulational, okay? The majority of uh, CCFers, I think, are probably pre-trib. That's just because they're not informed, okay? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just messing with you. Okay, the most popular position now, I think, in most circles is pre-tribulational rapture that Jesus is going to come back after the church is raptured, meaning they're going to be taken to heaven, and then after the rapture, Jesus is going to come back for the final judgment and all of that stuff. Okay, now we're kind of splitting hairs for most of us. It's like, is it really important? Well, for some people, that's an amazingly important thing because they spend so much time studying it. But what I'd like to say is that it is within the realm of possibility. So if you look in the circle, a pre-trib rapture is certainly possible, but it's also possible that the rapture is not going to take place until the end of the tribulation. Some people would say the middle of the tribulation. All of those are positions that there are, I think, significant biblical references that make it possible to believe that and still to be Orthodox Christians. But do we know for sure? When will we know? when it happens. <laughs> That's when we're going to know. Now, we could have lots of debates about which it is, but we won't know, really, until it finally happens. If you say Jesus isn't coming back, I will tell you that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says Jesus is coming back. We can be assured of that. When will it happen? We're not that certain. There are different options that are all within the realm of biblical possibility. So you see what I'm saying? Now, I know some of us are really diehard, pre-trib, and Jesus is coming. And, okay, I won't argue with you. In fact, I will avoid you because it's a little <laughs> dangerous to be near you. But for most of us, that's an issue that we can just live with, and, you know, it'll happen when it happens, and we prepare. Uh, I think Howard Hendricks, a great teacher at Dallas Theological Seminary, he used to say, uh, when people asked him, do you believe in the rapture? And he said, I pray for pre, and I prepare for post. Okay, think about that. I pray for pre, because I don't want to go through the tribulation. Frankly, if I could be out of here, I would be happy to be out of here. But I prepare for post, because what if we go through the tribulation? I want to be prepared. I want to be strong in my faith so that when it happens, I'm not going to be swept away. Okay, so that's kind of the framework that I want to give to you, that some things in the Bible are not absolutely clear. In fact, sometimes there are tensions between things that may seem almost contradictory, but it's just different aspects of the same thing. Is it important to have absolute clarity in all of these things? Apparently not. If God wanted it to be absolutely certain, he could have, but he has chosen not to. So we have to accept when he says, 
I am not going to give absolute closure on the date of my return. Then we better just say, okay, that's God's prerogative. I am not God. I cannot force him to tell me that this is the date that he is going to come. Even Jesus didn't know that. How does that affect us? Well, right now, uh, the basic issue that has been surfacing in some of the different groups that are uh, associated here with CCFLA have been really interested in the issue of Calvinism and Arminianism. Now, again, for some of you, you're going, Armenian? Yeah, I have a friend that's from Armenia. <laughs> <laughs> And the others are saying, yeah, Calvin and Hobbes. I really like Calvin and Hobbes, okay? So for some of us, this is not really a big issue. But for those that really study theology, you know, they get pretty worked up over some of these issues. I was talking with Pastor Peter before I came, and he said, you know, really? All of this stuff is irrelevant. I mean, it really doesn't make that much difference. Are you saved by faith? Yes, we all agree with that. The core of the gospel is the same, no matter what you talk about, you know, the order of salvation and all of that stuff. But I know for some people it has become an issue, so I want to try to address this a little bit, okay? Oh, let me give you one last thing before we go to that issue. We need to distinguish between issues to die for, issues to divide over, and issues just to agree to disagree about. For instance, if somebody tells me that you need to recant your belief that Jesus is God, I'm not going to do it. I will die for that. I don't mind if, uh, if Al-Qaeda cuts my head off. I am going to be like those guys that were on the beach in Libya. I am not going to renounce my faith in Jesus Christ because that's a die-for issue. There are certain issues that because they are strong and important issues for us personally, we might choose to divide. So if the church is going this direction and I'm going this direction, it may be better for us just to go different directions, okay? Doesn't mean that I go with animosity. It doesn't mean that I am going to make a big problem for the church. It's just, you know, personally, my convictions are this direction, and so I feel that I need to move in that direction. If the church is going a different direction, it may not be healthy for us to try to work together. So for instance, at the end of Acts chapter 15, uh, in Acts chapter 14, uh, the guy Timothy, or not Timothy, John Mark, who was with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, it got tough for him and he bailed out. He ran home to mommy and said, uh, missionary work, that's not for me. Uh, I'm going home, okay? Now, Barnabas, he is such an encourager, he always is looking for redemption for these people. So he's thinking, Paul, next time we go out on a missionary journey, I know John Mark is gonna do better. So let's bring him along. And Paul is going, you gotta be kidding. That wimp, you're gonna bring him along? I mean, he deserted us the last time. Why are we gonna bring him? And they had such an argument about that that Barnabas decided he will go with John Mark and Paul went with Silas and the others and they did their missionary journey. Now you think that's the end of the story with John Mark? Actually it's not. At the end of Paul's life, Paul asked 
that uh, John Mark would come because he was valuable to him. So it turned out that Barnabas was right and Paul was wrong, but this was an issue that they divided over. They went different directions. So there's nothing wrong at times when we have differences of opinion that if it's so severe that we allow the two to go in different directions. See what I'm saying? Okay. Um, for many of us, these issues are not divide over issues. They're just, well, these theologians, you know, butting heads, you know, let them work it out. For us, we're okay here. So if it's not a divide over issue, it would be an agree to disagree issue. So yeah, you have your opinion, I have my opinion, that's okay, but the essence, we all agree on. You know, the salvation through Christ, uh, belief, not through works, but through faith, all of those things, those are core beliefs. We're okay, so we'll continue to work together. We will agree to disagree. And I think there are many theological issues we need to do that with. So I hope that you understand. I am not encouraging big theological dispute. I'm saying, unless you are really convinced and committed to a particular perspective that isn't aligned with the church, yeah, we just agree to disagree about those things. Now let me tell you what is the main issue here. And uh, I'm gonna go through this really quickly. We teach classes that are like 40 credit hour classes on this stuff. Um, so I'm gonna do this in five minutes, okay? So here we go. <laughs> Either I'm really good or I'm really dumb, okay? <laughs> Um, Calvinism and Arminianism are two systems of theology that were developed back in the 1600s. And it's amazing that until now they are causing division in churches, okay? It was, both of them were attempts of theologians to be able to systematize what is true about God and about salvation and about Christianity. Both of them have different starting points or different perspectives. Calvinism, the basic focus of Calvinism is on the sovereignty of God. God is God, he is sovereign, he accomplishes everything that he chooses to accomplish. Would you agree with that? Yes. I, I think we all agree with that, that God is sovereign, that he accomplishes what he chooses to accomplish. On the other hand, you have Armenians. The Armenian would look at it and say, well, let's look at it from man's point of view. So they would focus on the responsibility of man. So does man have a choice in whether he follows Jesus or not? Yes. I would say yes. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. Some people would not agree. And that's where the conflict takes place. So let's look at Calvinism, kind of run through the whole thing here. If we look at the sovereignty of God, their reasoning, and by the way, this is primarily a rational argument. It's not just biblical, although they have their biblical perspective, but they're trying to create a framework to put all of the Bible verses in that make sense. So their reasoning is this. If people are completely free to choose, then God is not fully sovereign. You get the implication? Okay, if I say that you have the, the freedom to choose, but you choose to do something that is against what God wants to have happen, how can you say that God is sovereign? You get the problem? Okay, so rationally from a human point of view, there is some reason behind that, okay? It seems reasonable. 
God couldn't give complete freedom to people because people might screw up his plan, okay? So the implication would then be, if you take that to its logical conclusion, Jesus only died for those he chose. So if he elected, that's their key word, or chose certain people to be saved, then when he died, when Jesus died, he only died for those people. Because if God is sovereign, if I died for Insong, then Insong is going to be saved. But if I didn't die for Lynette, Lynette's not going to be saved. Sorry. I, nothing personal here. <laughs> uh, in other words, if Lynette is not going to be one of the chosen, why would Jesus die for someone that is not chosen? That's the implication. Also, people are chosen unconditionally for salvation. If God chose somebody to be saved because he knew that they were basically more responsive than someone else, then it's not completely sovereign. He is basing his decision on someone else's actions. Okay? But God is completely sovereign. So we would never say that that salvation or that choosing is given because God knew they were going to respond. Um, also, all those that God chooses will be saved. If you have been elected, if you have been chosen, then somehow God is going to make sure that you're going to be saved. Now, for the most part, we would agree with most of that, right? It sounds fairly reasonable. Um, but the problem is that the Bible seems to offer salvation to everyone. Now, if God is offering salvation to everyone, then it seems as though God is really saying, if you want to, if you choose, then you can be a Christian. I remember when the gospel was given to me, the guy didn't look at me and say, hmm, you got too long a hair, you can't be elect, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't think God wants you. So I'm gonna share the gospel with this guy because he looks more like you know, an elect guy. No. That's not what God is doing, and that's not the way the presentation of the gospel is in the New Testament. It's anyone who believes can be saved. So that's a problem, and it's a tension because the Calvinists don't really uh, have a good answer to that. Now, the Armenians, their focus is the responsibility of man, and this is the reasoning. If God hold, holds man accountable for his sins, then man must be free to choose. The argument is kind of like this. Again, Pastor Insong. If Pastor Insong is not able to choose to sin, he could not reject the gospel, then how can I hold him accountable? He's not sinning because of his own choice. He's sinning because I am forcing him to choose to sin. Therefore, it's not really something he can be held accountable for. Gets? Gets. I had to throw that out because you know, natutulog na yung mga bata. Okay, so it's like this. If I don't have a choice, I am never going to respond because uh, God has chosen that I won't respond, then how can God punish me for something that's not my choice? Um, did you, uh, when you were a kid, when you were really young, did you have a sibling? that used to do things to get you in trouble? Yeah. Some of you are going, you were the one, you know. <laughs> you know, 
you got in trouble for something somebody else did because they laid it on you. Did you think that was fair? No, you were mad. It's like this is totally unfair and it's usually your kuya that did it, right? Okay, so what would you say if God did the same thing? Well, it's not really your fault, but I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to punish you even though you didn't do it. Would that be fair? No. And that's the point of the Armenians. It's like, I'm not, I don't have a choice. I am not free to choose. So how can you punish me for something that I have no freedom to not do? Okay. So the implication is Christ's death is sufficient for everyone. If only those that choose to be saved can be saved, then it must be open to everyone. It can't only be for a few because anybody that would choose to follow Christ should be allowed to follow Christ, right? <clears throat> and the offer of salvation is to everyone and only those who respond in faith are saved. So we're not saying that everybody is saved. We're just saying that everybody should have the opportunity to be saved, okay? Is this clear? Now the problem is that man seems then to be responsible in some way for his salvation. I have to choose. So according to the Calvinist, that is a work. That is something that makes me better than you. If I choose and Pastor Insong does not, then ah, I'm better than Pastor Insong. And actually we know that there's nothing good in me. So how does that work? And my perspective is this. Both of these show opposite sides of the same coin, okay? Actually, is God sovereign? Yes. yes. Does man have a choice? Yes. They both have to operate in tension. They both are true, but this side of eternity, I'm never gonna understand how it happens, okay? And I guess my biggest problem with this whole debate between Arminianism and Calvinism is we are trying to comprehend God. Do you really think you can comprehend God? Okay, if I can comprehend God, who am I? I'm not only God, I'm better than God because I am somehow above him because I can understand him. And I think we need to be careful when our theological system puts God in a box and we try to determine for God what he's like. The Bible gives us some boundaries. Within those boundaries, all we can say is, the truth is in there, we're just not exactly sure how it works out. And there are thousands of questions that I'm gonna have when I get to heaven, and I'm gonna ask Jesus, and we got eternity to get all of those things out, okay? So let's not try to fix them all now, we will find out when we get there, okay? So just to summarize, this is something that uh, we take a little out of context, but 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 says this. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Okay, we usually take the next verse out of context, but we forget the actual context is don't, be argumentative about little tiny details. And then we hear the next verse, it says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The context is actually, don't make arguments of little trivial things. So if you are really accurately handling the Bible, 
you're not going to argue about little tiny things, about things that you can't understand. And it goes on and on and it says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Actually, these kinds of arguments, these little trivial things that we try to argue so vehemently about, actually do not contribute to Christian growth. So we need to avoid them. And I want to just go through very briefly a few of the verses just to remind us that salvation is offered to everyone. And uh, so bear with me with this. Some of these are very familiar. But I want us to understand that actually the gift of salvation, this gospel, this message that we have to the world is available to everyone. So it says in John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, anyone who receives him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John chapter 5, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words, whoever, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. John chapter 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? John chapter 12, uh, 12, verse 46. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And even into Acts, in the Apostle Peter's message, it says, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. One of the most powerful stories in the book of Acts is the, the jailer who he is supposed to be holding Paul and his friends in jail and then a great earthquake takes place and he is scared to death because he is a Roman and he's a Roman soldier. And if he lets all of the, the prisoners escape, even if it's not really his fault because of the earthquake, he will be put to death. And so after the earthquake, he runs back into the jail and he finds everybody there. They're not running away. They're still there. And Paul has to reassure him, don't worry, we're all here. And he has been hearing them praising and worshiping God, even though they have been beaten, they have been enchained. And there's something about them that he knows that he is in the presence of people that know God. And his answers are his question. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. How do we know that he was a believer? Well, he believed, but then... <laughs> He brought all of the prisoners into his house and gave them a big celebration. You know, he cleaned up their wounds. He did all of this. You could tell that there was a change in his life because he believed. And I think for all of us, 
I guess the question for us at the end of this message is, do we really believe? Have we made Jesus Christ our Savior and our Lord? Now, if you have, praise God, we hope that you are enjoying uh, a journey with the Lord, that he is helping you learn more and more what it means to follow Jesus. But if you're not sure, at the end of this, I wanna give you an opportunity to be able to respond to that gospel. Now, just to close this, I want to share a little excerpt. I took this from your website, so if it's wrong, it's his fault, okay? <laughs> but in the website, we actually have a statement of faith, and I encourage you once in a while to actually read so that you know what it is that you believe. Go to GLC, find out what it is that are our core beliefs. But this is what it says about salvation. And by the way, this is not the Bible, okay? So don't say that I'm making it equal to the Bible. But this is what we believe. This is what it says. We believe that salvation, with its forgiveness of sins, impartation of a new nature, and eternal life, is a free gift of God. It's not something that we do. It is a gift that is received when a person trusts in Jesus Christ to be his only Savior and Lord. It is given by God's grace and cannot be earned by man through good works, baptism, church membership, or any other means. That's what it means. We believe that salvation is a gift. And let me just tell you my own story, my own journey. Like I said, I'm from Riverside, and you may be like Jesus with Nathaniel. Can anything good come out of Riverside? Um, <clears throat> when I was growing up, I was raised in a religious family, at least my mom uh, always took us to Sunday school and to church, but it was in a church that was very, I would say, liberal. I never heard the gospel. I never heard that you needed to have a personal relationship with Christ. It was just, you know, we were taught Bible stories and went through the rituals and somehow felt like if we were good enough, if we were religious enough, eventually, if we died, we were going to go to heaven. But I was never sure of that. I really didn't know. But as a young boy, uh, I was much more interested in just being happy. And uh, I know in America, that's an important thing. People like to be happy. Is it only in America? No, I think everywhere people like to be happy. And so my journey was, how am I going to be happy? And so I thought, well, if I had lots of friends, if I was good at sports, you know, if I did certain things that were fun, you know, partied and all of that stuff, somehow I was gonna be happy. And uh, I remember that uh, even though I knew God was still somewhere out there, I didn't see that that was a very important part of making me happy. So I just went off and did the normal things that kids do when they're trying to be happy. But inside, I was not happy. And I remember my sister went to a Christian fellowship at our high school campus. And uh, because she was my ate, she was older than me, of course, you listen to everything that your ate says because they're the ate. And uh, so she was explaining to me about receiving Christ and being born again. And this was all like brand new stuff. It's like, I never heard about this before. They never talked about that in our church. So I was asking, I was probing, what does it mean? You know, what is this personal relationship with Christ? And she explained to me that when you receive Jesus into your life, when you believe that Christ comes into your life and that you have a personal relationship with him. And that was so different than what I had heard when I was in church, you know, going through 
all of the rituals and all of that. And that really appealed to me. And I wasn't quite sure how it would fit with this desire to be happy, but somehow I knew that I wasn't happy doing the things that I was doing. And this seemed to be a piece that I needed. So the night before Easter in 19 blank blank, I won't tell you, because <laughs> then you'll figure out how old I am and I don't want to do that. Um, I received Christ on my own and it turned out that my sister never did. So I was actually led to Christ by a non-believer, which is a little bit problematic because then I didn't know how to grow. Uh, now, since then she has, you know, I think uh, turned the corner and has come to know Christ. But at that time, she wasn't any help uh, in helping me to grow. The church that I was at, I never heard about having a personal relationship with Christ. So for a couple of years, I just, I had no idea what to do. So I continued with my path of trying to be happy, but deep inside knowing it wasn't making me happy. And it wasn't until my senior year in high school, I met a, a girl um, that was a real believer, somebody that was different. And I noticed that she wasn't going with us. We were in, on a study abroad pro, um, project in Europe. And the chaperones used to have a Bible study. And this girl used to go to the Bible study. And none of us kids went to the Bible study. Because it's like a Bible study. You know, we're in Europe. We're away from our families. We've got money. You know, why would you want to ruin your life by going to a Bible study? <laughs> So we are all supposed to be partying and all of that stuff. But we would go out and party, and then the next day we would be either hungover or just down or whatever, and we would have to crank it up again the next day to be happy. And I was watching this girl, and it's like, she's happy all the time. This is weird. We're partying, we're not happy. She's not partying, going to Bible study, she's happy. This isn't supposed to be that way, okay? This is wrong. So I went and I asked her probably the craziest question that a high school kid can ask to another girl. I said, why are you happy? <laughs> I mean, it's like she probably thought, what is wrong with this guy? But literally, I did. I went and I asked her why she's happy. And she explained to me that, you know, she had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and that he was the most important thing in her life, and uh, she just loved him, and she felt loved and forgiven, and all of this, and I'm going, whoa, this is really weird. But I, I was so impressed by the fact that it was so clearly real in her life. And so I said, well, you know, about two years ago, I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my life, and I'm pretty sure he did, but I'm not experiencing what you're experiencing. You know, what's different? And she said, well, it's kind of like meeting somebody. When you meet somebody, you introduce yourselves, and you can say that you know each other, but you don't really know each other until you spend time together. And that's the way it is in your relationship with God. You know, you have met Jesus, but you don't know him yet. You need to spend time in prayer. You need to spend time studying the Bible, being with other believers. You know, you need to be sharing about what God is doing with others as well. And when I got back, I was really on the fence. I didn't know, should I really commit to following Christ or not? When we got back to Riverside, I said, I'm all in. I want Jesus to be Lord of my life, not just my savior, but really to be Lord of my life. And at that point, I mean, so many changes took place in my life. <clears throat> I was a tennis player. I probably told this story before. 
but uh, I, my kind of model at the time was John McEnroe, uh, and I had a little bit worse temper than John McEnroe, okay? <laughs> I mean, it was rare that I would go through a tennis match without throwing my racket, you know, losing it, swearing, and all of this stuff. But I remember when I was, you know, before, I would go before the match and I would think, I am not gonna get angry. This time, I'm gonna control my temper, I am gonna stay, you know, under control, and by the second, third game, it was gone, okay? Then, when I went out after I really committed my life to following Jesus, I went out, and after the first week of our tennis practice, I was on the tennis team, after the first week of the practice, um, several of the guys on the tennis team came up to me and said, Jim, are you okay? <laughs> there seems to be something wrong, and I'm going, I feel fine, you know? No, they said, really, are you sick? And I said, no, I'm fine. It said, do you realize that this week you haven't sworn, you haven't thrown your tennis racket, you haven't lost it? What's wrong with you? You know, and I mean, before I tried to change all of those things, and I'm not saying I have no temper anymore, but I tried to change and I couldn't change. But when Jesus came into my life, he changed me. And I think that's the power of the gospel to change people's lives. And I hope that all of us experience that kind of thing. I no longer am trying to gain happiness by doing stuff that are just pleasure-oriented, but my greatest pleasure comes from serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what being a Christian, I think, is all about. Now, for some of you, I know this is reality already. This is what you are living. But I know that there are some of you that are probably on the fence like I was. It's like, I know Jesus, but I'm not yet really 100% all in to serve him. And I want to close this time just by giving you the opportunity, actually two things. If you've never received Christ into your life, or if you're not sure that you are going to heaven, that you will have eternal life, I wanna give you the opportunity to do that. Second, if you are here and you're saying, you know, I know that I received Christ into my life, but honestly, I'm still on the fence. Am I really gonna be all in for Jesus, or am I just going to kind of continue in the path that I've been on with Jesus as a, a little part of my life? If you want to make him the Lord of your life, I want to give you that opportunity too. So let's pray together as we close. <clears throat> While every uh, head is bowed and every eye is closed, if God has spoken to you about the essence of the gospel and you're not sure that Jesus really is your savior today and you want to express to him that you believe and that you trust him as your savior. If you want to do that, just pray along with me. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and receive you as my savior and Lord. Take control of my life. Change me from the inside out. Thank you for giving me eternal life and for giving all of my sins. In Jesus' name. Now for those of you, <clears throat> you have made that commitment before, but today you sense the Lord is speaking to you and telling you it's time to get off the fence. It's time for you to make Jesus Lord of everything in your life. 
to surrender every aspect of your life to him. I want you also to commit to do that today. Just in your own words, tell him, Lord, I've been living a double life. I'm not fully committed to you. Tell him you are willing right now to surrender everything to him to make him your Lord and your master. Father, we thank you that you are such a gracious and loving and merciful God. Father, we recognize that none of us are worthy of the salvation that you've given to us, that we are all sinful, that we have all fallen short of your glory. But Father, we thank you for the incredible sacrifice of your Son, our Lord Jesus. And Father, we thank you that you welcome us like the prodigal father, that when we have strayed, that you longingly look for us off in the horizon until we come back to you. And Father, we ask that you would just make that salvation so real in our life, Father, that there would be changes that people would see. And Lord, that you would allow the Holy Spirit, that you would give us the Holy Spirit to bring about the changes that you want in our lives. Father, we will give all honor and glory to you because you are deserving. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to thank uh, Pastor Jim for visiting with us. Uh, he'll be traveling. Uh, next week, I think you go to Sudan. Mm. Not Rustan, sorry, <laughs> Sudan, where it's hot. And we pray that the Lord go before him. And Sister Louie, you're going also, right? No? Man. <laughs> but please, let's continue to pray for Pastor Jim as he goes around the world bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, you know, as he has addressed... Uh, some of the issues that we encounter, I encourage all of us, continue to pray for those who have decided uh, you know, to part ways with us. But uh, we wish them God's best, we wish them God's peace, and there will be no animosity amongst us because it doesn't glorify God to have brothers and sisters in Christ fighting and debating over these things. And we want you know, the unity of the Spirit, United in one purpose, we have one mission, share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's pray as we close our time. God Almighty, we just want to thank you for bringing Pastor Jim, for speaking to us, bringing your word to us. And I pray, Lord God, that a lot has been cleared and clarified. And if we continue to lift up those, Lord God, in our midst who have decided to stay, and we also lift up to you those who have decided uh, to part ways with us, Lord God. We wish them well. We bless them in your name. And we pray for ourselves that we continue to model Christ-likeness to anyone and everyone. And even to the point, Lord, that we are given opportunities to share our faith with these people that they too might come to a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we continue to lift up to your pastor, Jim, Continue to bless the work of his hands. He has a big task ahead of him as the head of the International Missions uh, Department of CCF. He goes all over the place, Lord God. Some places are safe. Some places are dangerous. 
but you will your Holy Spirit go before him, Lord, give him wisdom, give them give him protection, Lord God. And will you just break open the hard ground, Lord, so that when he goes there and he preaches the gospel, that many will respond in faith. We've seen it, Lord, through your word, that in one day, 3,000 souls can be saved. And you are the same God that we worship this morning, and you are more than able to do that yet even today. So, Father, we pray that you just continue to bless him and his family, uh, their new son-in-law, their daughter just got married, bless that uh, relationship as well, Lord God. And we'll be careful to give you back all the glory, the honor, and the praise in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Have a blessed Sunday, everyone.